You're listening to The Originators, a 2FM collective podcast. Hi, I'm Rick O'Shea and welcome to this episode of RTE2FM's podcast series, Originators. Throughout the series, I'll be talking to Irish under 35s from sometimes wildly varying fields who've found success and finding out how it happened and who they really are. This episode was recorded in the Science Gallery at Trinity College Dublin, where I met Sinead Burke, primary school teacher, broadcaster, the alternative Miss Ireland Emeritus, blogger, TEDx speaker, and also three foot five inches tall. She first became well known under the alter ego mini melange. I started by asking her where the name came from and how that came about. So there was a competition in Ireland running for 25 years called Alternative Miss Ireland. And I didn't know a lot about it. But actually what it stemmed from, my wanting to enter, was because of the experiences that I'd had in nightclubs and pubs in Dublin as a trainee teacher student. Mm -hmm. And I would go out into coppers and various other establishments and was in many ways treated horrendously by other people. And they had a few drinks on them and like, you know, young men would come over and lift me up, put me into the air and put me back down. Um, other young men would stand in front of me and unzip their fly in my face because they thought it was macho and humorous and funny. And it was just so frustrating more than anything else. And I went to the George one night with some college friends and was a little bit nervous about getting up on stage and, and dancing because obviously that treatment, I didn't know if it would follow into a gay club or whatever. And sure. it didn't. I was left completely alone. And that feeling of acceptance and normality, whatever normality is, was mm -hmm. so powerful that when I heard about Alternative Miss Ireland, not that it was a thank you to the LGBT community, because that sounds really trite, but it was kind of almost like that. It was like a, an honouring of that. It must have meant initially when you were in that phase where you were starting to go, go to nightclubs mm. and where you were, did it just completely put you off the whole idea of having a social life? Well, not necessarily social life because I, I don't drink alcohol as it is anyway. And I'm lucky that I have the personality that would get up on a table and dance completely sober. I don't need the alcohol as a, like a lubricant to get up and do that. Um, so in that way, you know, getting drinks at the bar and having to shout at the bartender and not being able to reach the bar wasn't that much of an issue because my friends would have done that for me. But it was just frustrating and I would have had to put a lot more planning into it. I had to be more resilient. I had to be more tolerant of other people. I had to be conscious of, like, in a nightclub, being able to get out safely because if it became too crowded, the oxygen wouldn't get down to my level. There was one instance where a friend physically carried me out, not because I was too drunk or anything, but because I physically needed to get out of the building and couldn't. And that's not something you want to do when you're a paying customer. Um, so it was that kind of feeling that I just, I didn't really love it. And still to this day, if I'm going out on a nightclub, and I'm a little bit older now, but if I'm going out to a nightclub, I would want to make sure I have good people around me for that support system in case anything does go wrong. And I feel a sense of guilt then that my friends are also paying in or my sisters or whatever are also paying in, and yet they have to take this protective stance just because I'm with them. Um, so it's kind of tricky, but the experience that I had in, in the George that night was transformative it really was it was absolutely transformative and I remember turning to my friends and being like is this what it's like for you every night because I totally get it now I get why you want to be out on a Saturday night dancing and having a good time um, and yeah it was from there that that I wanted to enter and you know that's a while back now yeah. so so the, the two personas of of, of Mini and of you and yeah. of everything you've done since then did they start off being completely separate things? They and they did, because kind of when, merged? when when Minnie Melange started, I suppose, you know, I retold the story of Snow White and the Seven Dwarfs on stage in the Olympia in front of 1,200 people. 
and I wore a wig. I wore a snow white wig. So that was probably the biggest in terms of physical difference between Sinead and Minnie initially. And when I worn and came out, I was asked to host charity quizzes for the LGBT community and do, you know, the pride parade and various other things. And I always wore a wig. I had a, a black snow white wig. I had a bright fluorescent pink wig. I had a purple wig. I had a long ginger wig. And if ever I was doing something as Minnie, I wore the wig. But then it was actually probably more out of independence that I stopped wearing the wig rather than like this is Sinead and this is Minnie because it was such an effort to get the wig on because I couldn't reach independently to do it so if I was going to a gig or doing something on my own I was like I'll just leave the wig I can't pin it Um, and that was probably the physical merging of the two but yeah that was 2012 and we're now 2017 so I don't know I think initially because Minnie was on stage she was able to do more and say more and be a bit bolder but I'm fairly bold as Sinead myself so I don't know if I can afford to be bolder out of character um, but I, yeah I don't know where the two merge I once saw you uh, say that you'd love to be able to go back to your 16 year old self mm. and say social media is going to completely change your life yeah. tell us why social media completely changed your life as it pretty much has for, for everyone yeah and I think for me more in a good sense when when I say that to people and people who don't know me they think initially oh were you bullied online or were you harassed online and in many ways the harassment and the bullying that I face is much more in person than online which is an interesting uh, comparative but it was because I was really interested in fashion as a teenager and I had this appetite for it primarily because I felt left out I couldn't shop independently I couldn't reach anything in a store from the rail to the changing rooms to the cash register and then I looked at a magazine and nobody ever looked like me so I used to just sit around and read everything that I could and watch everything that I could and ask questions and took notes and would tunnel all of this information to my poor parents and would tell them about what Christopher Bailey was doing in Burberry or Simone Rocha opening a shop in New York and what impact that would have for the reputation of Irish designers abroad. And they are wonderful people, but nobody deserves to listen to that amount of nonsense. So the internet was a vehicle and a place for me to have a conversation, initially on my own, um, but with like-minded individuals who had a similar interest, where what I looked like wasn't relevant. Um, what was relevant was my vocabulary, my fluency, my ability to ask questions, my ability to have a voice and have a say. And it was really encouraging for me for not to be challenged immediately because of what I looked like. And it was this equalizer that was really empowering. I'm going to take the enormous jump here because I think Do. bit in the middle is important to you standing in front of Anna Wintour, the picture of which I've seen <laughs> very recently. And you going up to her and just going, listen, I really you know, love what you've done. And I, how, wh- wh- how, where is the story from that to Anna Wintour? Um, it's uh, probably four or five years in, in a story unfolding. I think one of the earliest moments that was probably a pinnacle for it was walking down Georgia Street. And I was laden down with bags and Paul Costello was standing on George Street admiring his work in Dunce. As you do. As you do. And I was like, oh my God, there's Paul Costello. And I was on my own. I was like, I wonder what he'd say if I went up and introduced myself. So I walked over and tugged on the sleeve of his jacket. I'm sure he looked around and was like, what child is annoying me? Um, but he was very kind. I still get my hand and said, hi, Paul, my name is Sinead. It's really nice to meet you. I love what you do in fashion. And like word vomited over, over him. And I walked off delighted with myself and feeling that I was respected and that was given a space to kind of talk to somebody who I really admired. And on the way home, 
I used Bussaren's Wi-Fi and guessed an email address for Paul Costello because um, I thought, oh, I wonder if I could interview him. He was so nice Impressive. to me there on the street. Yes. And the email address that I guessed, they got back to me about two weeks later and said, really sorry, we're actually the store. We're not the studio. But this is his assistant's email. Email his assistant and see how you get on. I plagued the assistant. And Jordy, who is his assistant, is still there and a lovely man. And Jordy got back to me and said, Paul's back in town in three weeks. Do you want to meet him? I said, please. We met in Dawn's headquarters. And the first thing he said was, where can I sit that's comfortable for you? So we did the interview with him sitting on the floor and me standing so that we were at eye level. And I wrote up the interview, sent it on to the team, was delighted with myself. And they got back to me and said, thank you very much for such an interesting conversation with Paul. Can we have your postal address, please? Because we'd love to invite you to a show at Fashion Week. And I've been invited and been to his show every season since. And that was such a moment that somebody took a chance on me. It's so encouraging and heartening that a space that I really felt excluded have now felt so included. And that was a propeller because that was successful. And I was like, well, if that worked with Paul, what what else and what more can I do? And using that as a way to sit down with the most interesting people. And yeah, to Anna Wintour, to being at New York Fashion Week and sitting behind her and talking to some friends in WhatsApp from home and the co-founder of the IFDC, Liz Jackson, saying, what, like, what do you think she'd say? Could I go up to her? And their reaction being like, go for it. What's the worst thing that exactly. can happen? Well, I was going home the following day anyway, and I thought, well, you know, if I'm deported, like, it's, it's, it's fine. <laughs> it's a good way yeah, to end that story. Yeah, I was yeah, like, it's okay. tomorrow. And Anna is known notoriously for getting to fashion shows early. She was sitting there with the sunglasses on, and she was talking to somebody. And I literally just walked up to her, and because of my size, I was at eye level with her, So I, because she was sitting. So I didn't have to bend over. Mm-hmm. And I just waited until she stopped talking. And she looked at me and was like, hello. And I stuck out my hand and said, hi, my name is Sinead. I'm really sorry for disturbing you. But I just really wanted to introduce myself and say, hello, you have been editor in Vogue for my whole existence. And I just wanted to thank you for all that you've done to shape my interest in fashion. And it was maybe three to four minutes. And I don't know, she probably will never think of it again. But I was just so impressed with how kind and nice she was and human she was in a way that she didn't have to be. And I came away so impressed. What three things could you not live without? Um, my phone. And that sounds very kind of predictable, I think, as regards to, you know, using social media. Um, Mm. But it's actually more of a safety device. So I go to a bathroom in a regular bathroom and I go into the cubicle and I can't reach the lock on the door. So usually my angle is to see if there's a bin that I can turn upside down and stand on. Or I put my coat and my bag. I did like your picture from New York of you standing on a bin. To get to the toilet. That was was at New York Fashion Week. That was you being the most normal person imaginable at New York Fashion Week using a bin. The toilets are higher in New York and also their doors are higher in New York. So like you can see more of me behind the cubicle which I'm very uncomfortable about I'm going to pretend that you don't Um, so I do that but my phone I usually jam it across with the lock so I usually bang the lock with my phone to try and get myself in and then I've been locked in many many toilets so I have to bring the phone with me to ring the person that I'm with and go I'm really sorry but can you go call a member of staff please because I am locked in the toilet Um, so for safety reasons and for like calling cabs I rely on it as a very big safety device and for listening to music and podcasts and of course social media and taking photographs and the other thing my family I have three sisters and one brother my parents and if I was to say that I was successful, um, if I am, it's very much down to them um, and down to their support, their challenge, um, their critique. And one more thing uh, is probably Diet Coke. Um, I have one sitting beside me, which I need to do Why? less of. Um, I don't know. I, 
I was off it for about eight months. And I think it's a mix of, I'm conscious of the amount of, this is a paradox, but because of my body mass and size, I'm conscious of the amount of caffeine I drink and the amount of coffee I drink. So I think Diet Coke was probably a replacement for that. And then if I'm out at a a night out because I don't drink alcohol, I would take the Diet Coke. Um, So I I do like San Pellegrino lemon, but that's a bit notionsy. That's that's one of the least notionsy things you can. Uh, no, it has tin foil on the lid. Well, it does. Okay, and it does have a posh name, but I think in the level of notions, it's on the very, very low end of the scale. Frankly, it's 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 my vice that I need to get rid of, but we'll see. Everyone's had one or two. This is surely. it. This is it. If we got rid of all of our vices. Where would be the fun? In life? Narcissism and Diet Coke. <laughs> Done. <laughs> is that going to be the title of uh, of you know the entire book of your entire life, narcissism and narcissism and diet coke? Well, I was originally some time ago. I flirted with the idea of having a f- doing a, a one woman fringe show, and it was going to be called Sinead's Fringe. And the poster campaign would be at three foot five level, and it would just be a fringe. <laughs> so it would be Sinead's Fringe. But I have not written the fringe show. I it was just a marketing campaign idea. Um, so who knows the book? I don't know. I don't know about the book. It would be lovely. But I don't know if anybody would be bothered reading it except my mother. No, I see. But, but, uh, have, have people approached you? Not formally. Um, but I think I would love to do something as regards to like fiction or a children's fiction. I think very much coming from that thing that when I was growing up and when I was in school, the books that I was reading, there was never a character who looked like me. Um, and it would be lovely to illustrate that in some way. I was a consultant editor for a book last year that came out of the UK with Hachette and there was a little person protagonist in that and nobody in the process was a little person. So I was brought on board to kind of just check that things were okay. And that was a really interesting process as a consumer of, of books and of literature. But I don't know. I don't know what I would write about. I would have all of these inner questions about, you know, if you play somebody who looks like you in the text, it again comes back to that mini or Sinead question, how much are they like you? And then you have to promote it and you have to give a lot of yourself to that and I'm very protective of myself and my family uh, and I give a lot of myself as it is I don't know if now is the right time Where is the line? Because for anybody who's involved in in the public eye Mm -hmm. these days particularly for people who are in any way active on social media most people draw a line somewhere and they say this is what I'm willing to put out there and Mm -hmm. then everything behind this curtain stays stays here Where's yours? Um, If I'm having a bad day it's not social media that hears about it or at least not immediately if something happens like you know say there's been a couple of instances where I've been walking down the street in Dublin and cars have pulled over and you know, windows have been unwound and photographs have been taken of me and I've been called names. Um, and in that instance, my first port of call is always that support network that I rely on. I will talk to friends, I will talk to my mother um, and vent to them or try to find a way in which to manage and deal with that situation emotionally then. And if there's learning from it or if there's something that I want to point to, I go back to it as regards to social media and very deliberately, you know, script five tweets or four tweets or an Instagram post and put it out there. I don't ever post when I'm at something um, for safety reasons. I'm three foot five inches tall. You walk into a room, there's probably one of me, if not less. If mm-hmm. you think I'm there, it's me. Um, just as regards to safety. And but there's so many people that do that these days as well. And you don't yeah. necessarily think about the whole thing of now people know exactly where I am, yeah. where I'm going to be for the next two hours if they're in the public eye. Yeah, and I, I am very deliberate about that. I'm very deliberate about what I share as regards to my family and my friends, you know, a big trend that I'm trying to step away from in 2017 is this idea of the performance of friendship and the performance of work and I have some amazing incredibly talented friends but is it right to put a coffee date or a lunch date with them on social media and if so what is the purpose of it is it for people to go oh 
you're friends with such and such. Oh, was that interesting? And my big thing for 2017 is to be present with people, whether they are strangers or close friends or family members, to spend time with them and to cherish that time rather than questioning, oh, I wonder what the social media currency of this moment is. So that's what I'm trying to do more of. Tell me about, um, you were mentioning your phone and in yes. particular music, and what do you like to listen to? Um, I Spotify, we have, going back to family, we have a family subscription on Spotify that we all share and create playlists. My playlists are private, thankfully, to save me some sort of embarrassment. Um, what's on my playlist at the moment? I've just added Katy Perry's new song, which I'm intrigued by, but not really sure that I'm enamored by. It's overtly political, but not, which I have questions about. Um... I listen to, unsurprisingly, a lot of women, a lot of women of color, um, a lot of kind of people who are just trying to tell a, a different or interesting story. I'm constantly questioning, like, whose voices are being heard. And that stems from my PhD and also my personal experiences, whose seat at the table. I thought, thought Solange's album last year was absolutely spectacular. But I'm also really intrigued by the fusion of music, popular culture and fashion and how they are all interplayed and intertwined and the impact that that can have as an audience member so I thought Lemonade and Beyonce was absolutely remarkable and looking at how she used a brand say like Gucci and she wore numerous outfits by Gucci in the formation video alone and what could that can mean in terms of profitability for a brand, uh, brand ambassador, marketing campaign. But then also when you are then listening to Formation, the images that play in your mind is of, you know, strong women of color. But then the impact that fashion has on that and like Christine and the Queens, I'm a major fan of. And then looking at how she's challenging femininity versus masculinity by her use of the suit and by, you know, gay men being backup dancers and the various narratives that she's challenging that through Tilted alone. Are you always because of the nature of who you mm. are and what you do, analyzing to some extent everything that you're listening to in one form or another. Yeah, it's deeply problematic. I wish I could switch it off, <laughs> but I think it's very much a part of who I am. And it's probably a protective mechanism along with a part of my you know, researcher DNA. And it's what makes me think the way I do and view things the way I view it and, you know, go about the world but yeah questioning things is part of me <laughs> who who how, do you think is the person who's influenced you the most in your adult life um my parents most definitely and it sounds really cliche to say it but you know my dad is a little person and I inherited the condition from him and 80% of little people are born to two average height parents so it's even quite unusual um as regards to that kind of family model. And when my parents were having children, there was a 50-50 chance for every child. And I was the only one who had the condition. And I think in many ways, having that role model of my dad there was fundamental because when people asked me, whether it was in media or whether it was in everyday life, you know, when did you realize that you were little? Um, my answer was always, well, I never saw myself as different because I was just like my dad and yeah. that was my normality. And I think that was a huge hand in me having great confidence because why would I have concerns or queries about this? Look, my dad is a wonderful man. He got married, he had children, he lives a lovely life. Why would I have any concerns about being this way? Um, and my mother is the most amazing person. Um, and together they founded Little People of Ireland in 1998 because they realized that whilst I had the confidence that I needed, there was many things as regards to services and education and school that they had questions about and there was no way to get answers. And they have built this community, but more importantly, a safe space 
for people to ask questions, to take part in a fashion show where the little person is a model, to text me and say, I have my Debs in two weeks, where will I get a dress? But for just people to be themselves, and that's both little people and also siblings. So I think in many ways, my brothers and sisters probably have a more challenging time than I do. Because when they are dating or when they are bringing friends home for the first time, do they tell their friends, by the way, my dad is and my sister is? Or do they not mention it? I walk into a room and it's really obvious. You can predict the things I can and can't do. And I think that's a real help sometimes because in 30 seconds, I know whether or not we're going to get on or how that relationship will develop. And having a space where siblings can talk to other siblings and meet other little people and parents can talk to other parents, like they have genuinely changed the lives of hundreds of people in Ireland. For no other gain than why not? So when you're saying just there in, in yeah. terms of um, people, you know, needing clothes for events or doing yes. that kind of thing, I want you to tell me the story <laughs> about the White House yeah. and about Riverdance. Um, so I was invited to the White House in September of last year. Um, they were hosting an event called Design for All, which was about the fusion of fashion and disability. And I was invited to speak on a panel. Like genuinely couldn't believe it. like the email came in and I really thought it was spam like so embarrassing because I was like why on earth would the White House and the Obama administration ask me to come over and talk about fashion and disability and I kind of got a reminder email to be like please RSVP to the White House um, did you not respond to the first one did you re- did you just leave it there yeah yeah I did I know and I accepted it and said yes and I met a friend of mine I just was happening to meet a friend of mine anyway the following day thankfully he is one of the best fashion stylists in the world So he took my phone off the table and we did a Leslie Jones. So when Leslie Jones was promoting Ghostbusters, fashion designers wouldn't dress her. So she sent out a tweet and Christian Siriano stepped up and dressed her for the premiere. And we sent a tweet that said, speaking at an international event next week, have nothing to wear. Does anybody have any ideas? And 20 minutes later, I got a message from Moya Doherty. She said, gosh, I'm so sorry that, you know, you can't and haven't found anything to wear. I know how much fashion means to you. Do me a favor and make an appointment with the costume department in Riverdance. They'll make you whatever you want. It's on me. At this stage, she did not know what the event was. Um, It could have been anything. So I emailed back and said, just so you know, that international event that I'm speaking at is the White House, um, not the one in Cluny, Washington. And she got back and said, of course it is. You deserve it. Have a wonderful time. So myself and Colm made an appointment with um, the Riverdance Costume Department. And through four sessions, we designed this beautiful blue satin skirt that was just enveloped me in many ways. But it's not a garment and a style that I get to wear that often because it has to be custom made. And a beautiful, delicate and feminine white blouse with cut out sleeves. And it was with a week to go when I got the outfit and I went to Washington and talking to people there and them saying, you know, who dressed you as if it's E in the red carpet. And I was like, river dance. I was so incredibly proud to go to the White House initially, but then to go to be talking about fashion and disability space that I never thought would be a valid conversation. To then go and be an ambassador almost for river dance was just incredible. And I had too much fun. And so finally, what happens next? I don't know. I should probably put the head down. <laughs> no. um, I'm very lucky. I get to do so many interesting things. Um, I want to finish the PhD. I have uh, a year and a half to two years left. It's a challenge trying to balance it all. And that sounds very cliche. Um, but the theme of voice runs through all things that I'm interested in. And I hope that all of the things that I'm involved in now will eventually 
the result would be that I emerge from Trinity, hopefully Dr. Sinead Burke, with a number of options as regards to profession and then personal interests that I want to get personal validation from and stuff like that. I would love just a job that I can get a mortgage deposit out of, which sounds ridiculous, but the physical inaccessibility of most renting buildings in Dublin means that I can't rent. I can't reach the lock on the hall door. And whilst the person I'm living with may be able to help with that, if there's an emergency like a fire or something, I can't get out. And those buildings that perhaps are more accessible are more expensive. So I really need to be in a position where I can walk into a bank with the 10 to 20% deposit and say, here, I would like to live in the city or wherever I choose to live. So trying to find something that fulfills all of my interests, all of my ideals and my ethics, beliefs and everything, whilst also having the financial payoff. Um, I don't know, I told Ryan Tuberty I wanted his job. You can see the face I'm making. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) He didn't take it so well. (laughs) None of us ever do when people say that to our faces. No, no, no. Though I did define myself as young to my siblings recently and they went, Really? Really? I still think of myself as young. I mean, it's delusional, but that doesn't mean it's until not I'm like 35 and can apply for the presidency. I think I'm young. That's that's my benchmark. pre-presidency is young. That makes sense. pre-presidency. Okay. I like that term. Pre-presidency is young. You are pre-president, Sinead Burke. Pre-president. Is I that d- where we finish? Um, With you and your a, pre-presidency. It's a nice. It's a nice ending, isn't it? <laughs> it has been absolutely wonderful talking to you, and thank you for taking the time out today here in the Science Gallery in Dublin for talking to us. Thank you so much for having me. This episode was produced by Amanda Fenley. The series producer is Alice O'Sullivan. I'm Rick O'Shea. Thanks for downloading Originators. You'll find details about this and all the rest of the episodes in the series on the RTE2FM website at 2fm.ie slash The Collective. The Collective. 2FM.